Hello and welcome to an Inside the Groove bonus beat special. My name is Edward Russell and today I am so excited to bring you this exclusive interview with Tony Shimkin. Tony's name will be familiar to many Madonna fans. His first credit was for Vogue. He talks about his role on that song as editor, but he was also present at the remix and production sessions for many, if not most, of the work done by Shep Pettibone. And by the time of the Erotica album, he was writing some of the compositions, such as Deeper and Deeper and Bad Girl, and he talks in depth about that. We've been chasing each other for a few weeks. Tony is based in New York, I'm in the UK, and it took a while for our schedules to align, but when they did, it was well worth it. You're really gonna learn a lot in this podcast. And normally, I have some music accompanying it, but because of the sound quality, I'm gonna drop that bed of music underneath, so it might feel a bit weird, um, but hopefully you'll be able to follow everything he says, and as I did, hang on his every word. So let's get underway. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to the podcast. I'm sure you're very busy, but just I to... actually did though. I, did. Oh, I, you did? Um, I listened to the Vogue episode, which was very interesting to listen to. Um, oh, I'm sure you found it, loads of things it, that were wrong about it that you want to correct. No, not really. No. Um, uh, it, I was, I was actually disinterested also in where you got the multi-track uh, elements. Well, I mean, that's kind of the basis of the podcast. The multi-tracks yeah. are out there for probably about 30 Madonna songs. There's really? a whole where? Well, they just exist. They, um, I don't know where they come from. Um, a lot of Michael Jackson stuff is out there as well. There are websites. I will, I'll send you a link because I'm sure... Yeah, you'll be... please. I know that like, people get multi-track elements because when Guitar Hero, for instance, yeah. made versions of songs that you know the, the standards were provided... Um, yeah. And I guess, uh, you know, I just think back in the day when we were in the studio that, that we had the multi-tracks and then I remember the specific, like the specific studio we worked in. It was just put into the vault, so to speak, uh, or yeah. the tape library. Um, but then again, copies were made and sent out to each remixer who was going to be doing the remix of it. So. I guess stuff has just been circulating for years, and there's probably yeah, of course, probably a market for it now. And um, just as in any new song an artist does gets leaked somehow, somebody gets a copy, and absolutely, and, and it's, it. it's it's really fascinating with this stuff. And f- nothing that you were responsible for actually has ever leaked. I think the vocals are out there for deeper and deeper and erotica. The vocals uh, stems, but, none of, but nothing else, which which is a shame. Um, I think the only thing I actually have in in possession which has already gotten out somehow from somewhere else were like cassettes of the demos as we were working yep. on them we'd make cassette copies just to listen to on our own of like where we were at with a specific song and, and those probably, have all leaked with the with the unreleased songs like shame and yeah and, um uh you are the one yeah all fascinating to listen to and it's quite i would like to think it's quite an intelligent audience to listen to the podcast who who right. either under understand the songwriting and production or, or want to know more about it so um we can talk on a reasonably um uh, level level um i mean I, I think the number one question i've got for you is um, your first credit for madonna is on vogue i don't know if that's the first time you worked with her but you're credited for editing that track is it the yeah. first time you worked on um, a track let me think pretty much yeah i believe um, I was an assistant in the recording studio during the time that 
the remixes of Express Yourself and Like a Prayer were done. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if I'm credited as, as, a, as an assistant engineer. Um, and for Vogue, yeah, I did the edits on the, you know, remixes and the 12-inch and the 7-inch version and all that. Um, so because as that? I started out as uh, Shep's um, editor, basically, I he would hire me to do the edits. And that was editing tape with like, a, you know, a razor blade, a grease pencil, and, and uh, pre-digital. Of course, yeah. So there's a, there was a number, of, I, I guess Shep prepared a number of, versions that you then sort of literally spliced together and created the mixes from is that is that the yeah case? more or less whenever we do um you know i was in the studio during the you know the recording and you know the the initial track writing of it and then the recording of it with her in that basement studio that you talk about um mm-hmm. so i was around for the, the entire process and then as you do like 12 inch version back then what we would what would happen is the the full uh version would be on you know on tape so to speak but it would only be the length of the song so we would we would record pieces like okay let's let's create the intro and then we create the intro and record that down to a half inch tape a two track mm-hmm. and then we would go okay though here's the verse through the break and you know uh we would do that the body of the song and then because a lot of it there, there was automation involved and effects mm-hmm. that were being applied on the fly as it was going down to the, the two inch tape I mean, the, the half-inch tape. Mm-hmm. And then once uh, all of those parts were done, you know, then you'd break off and do like the house version or the dub. Um, mm-hmm. And the dub was like, you know, a lot of things on the fly. And then so then you'd have all these pieces and you could put them together however you wished. Um, mm-hmm. There were specific editors at the time that like, you know, Shep taught a lot of them because he was one of the original kind of editors to make remixes when he did it in his home uh, from records, you know, like extending breaks and extending things. Um, mm-hmm. There were certain editors who were really adept at doing almost magic with a razor blade and, and could do the multiple stutter kind of effects and things like that. And so I kind of learned from a lot of those people how to do it. I never did it quite as um, intensely as they would, but, you know, you could get creative. And so, yeah, it was basically piecing together from things that were created in the studio and what would become a final version of something. Or for like the seven inch version, we would take the 12 inch version and my job would just be to cut it down. So you have to say, okay, what don't we need here? And what can we do without uh, to make this a a radio length of three minutes or so or three and a half minutes. Because Shep was quite the originator of a lot of that style of 80s mixing, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, he did it for... WBLS radio and, and, and specific um, radio stations. It was called the Master Mix. That's the name of this company. And he basically started by he would have a record. He might spin another record over it because he was a DJ. He would then edit these master mixes, these long kind of uh, exclusive versions of songs in, onto tape and make a one hour radio show called, you know, the Chef's Master Mix or whatever. And uh, people never heard these versions. They wanted them, and they recorded them off the radio. And then it inspired a uh, the remix culture uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, you know. And then, yeah, then he was hired to do remixes for, you know, Sal Soul Orchestra and things like that. Because mm-hmm. you were really young at the time, weren't you? Am I right in saying you were very early twenties? Me, yeah, I was. You know, I, I met Chef uh, at Soundworks Studios where I started as an intern when I was a junior in high school. 
Um, so I was probably 17. Uh, and then 18 years old when I was uh, working in that recording studio, uh, you know, just being there for all the sessions and helping out as I could, basically interning, answering phones, and getting coffee and all that kind of sort of stuff. But I befriended a lot of the, the producers and the engineers and, you know, the creative people who came in and worked in that studio as regular clients. One of the earliest things that when I was working there as an intern was Duran Duran's um, Big Thing record. Oh, and they were in the studio for three months uh, or longer, I think, with Daniel Abraham and as an engineer. And they were, it was, it was Simon, it was Simon, Nick, and John were all in there along with their manager and various people. But they were working on that album, mixing the record, I should say, for over three months. There were fans of theirs a lot from the UK who just lived in New York, camped out living on the street outside of our studio, which was in the basement of studio 54. And uh, I was an intern. And I became friends with the band. I, I even have a credit on that album. <laughs> wow. Or a I should say a thank you. <laughs> wow. This is incredible. You've, you've got the life I wish I had already. Yeah, and that's, that's where I met Shep. And, and, and eventually, you know, I was an assistant engineer there on a lot of his sessions and then he hired me to edit a lot of the remixes that he was working on. And then I went on to work as his uh, personal assistant and then a co-writer. So going stepping back to Vogue uh, for a second then, you were there, you say you were there in the studio when Madonna recorded. Um, she was, at the time, one of the most famous people in the world, probably the most famous person in the world. Is it true that it was a very underground feel at that, stu feel at that studio? Yeah, it was a small studio. Um, it was owned by... Um, I believe a gentleman named Van Gibbs, who was a client at Soundworks Studios, where we ultimately mixed and did the, you know, did a lot of the remixes we had done for everything else, you know, including um, Like a Prayer and Express Yourself. That was like kind of Chef's uh, studio, uh, home studio, at least his studio of choice for remixing. Um, back in the day, that studio was the studio where they recorded Steely Dan's Gaucho and. Um, and uh, Donald Fagan's Nightfly. It was a, it was a kind of one of the forefronts of technology studios as far as outboard gear and kind of some of the new equipment that came through and things like that. Uh, so that's where Shep did all his remixes. So a gentleman by the name of Van Gibbs used to work out of there. Purchased, uh, I guess a uh, if it was an apartment or if it was a room or something in a in a building, just an apartment building down in the basement. Built his project studio or his recording studio down there, which was much smaller. And yes, as, as you kind of put it, uh, you know, underground. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's where all the um, we brought the pre-production and the original kind of tracks that were created in another studio uh, into for her to record. It was basically yeah, we chose that place for her to record. So were you involved in the recording of Rescue Me at all? Yeah. Rescue Me was, we did, um, where Chef uh, had an apartment on the Upper East Side, um, and we had a, a project studio that um, we put together for editing originally, and then uh, also to, you know, start creating original music. And uh, that was the first, uh, one of the first things we created in that studio was uh, the tracks for Rescue Me. 
It's it's one of the songs that very little is known about, and therefore, as you can imagine, fans are desperate to know more information about it. So, any any gem you have on that? Yeah, song? I was in that studio. Um, you know, uh, obviously, the sound effects of the rain are probably like BBC <laughs> uh, sound effects because those were like the sound effects sources that were out at the time on vinyl, um, and we did a lot more additional production with some really talented musicians and um, programmers up at uh, Axis Studios, which was Mm -hmm. in the penthouse of the same building as Studio 54 and where Soundworks was. That was uh, a studio owned by Francois Kevorkian, the the DJ and producer. Um, And we did a lot, pretty much all of our pre-production on remixes was done at Axis Studios. And then we would go downstairs to Soundworks studios to do the mixes. Um, Rescue Me, it was in, yeah, I guess it was, it's, it's almost like I, I, I could refer to it as like a side note. It was, it wasn't like there was no intention, like this is going to be a huge mm-hmm. single or, or I don't know, you know, it just became something that found a home. Um, and it became something that after Shep had done Like a Prayer and Express Yourself, and then Madonna wanted him to work on an original song and Vogue came about. Then the next logical thing after that was the Immaculate Collection. Mm-hmm. So um, that was a process that involved multiple studios where Chef had to go and we had to go back and forth between Soundworks and Right Track Studios and you know a variety of studios and mix engineers that we employed to tackle all the songs that were involved on that. I've read in an interview, Shep says it had to be done very quickly. Um, and of course, there's something like 17 or 18 tracks on there. Um, and it was also Q Sound as well, which must have offered a yes. few challenges. Yeah, I mean, we had an engineer named Go Hotoda, who's from Japan, who's very talented. We had uh, Michael Hutchinson, who's another engineer that worked on it. I believe maybe Bob Rosa, Steve Peck were other engineers. And then, you know, Shep had, and we had to travel uh, between Soundworks and Right Track and all the different studios within. Uh, different those facilities, um, like Right Track had multiple rooms, and oversee, you know, the mix that was going on. And then Q Sound was introduced. And at Soundworks, we had a uh, there's a live room that was very rarely used. Obviously, like you know, for Vogue uh, or other songs, like the background vocalist would be in there. Additional, mm-hmm. you know, instrumentation could be recorded in there, but it was not used since, like, say, the days of uh, Donald Fagan and all. And, and Steely Dan as a that's a true live room. Like when I started as a intern in in high school, there there was actually some live recording being done there, which is interesting. But um, the Q Sound uh, processing units were put in that live room because one they were noisy, and two they were big. They were mm-hmm. large racks. I, I liken them to like the size of a refrigerator <laughs> of equipment that when the signal was run through that could be panned to uh, sound like it was, you know, outside of the studio realm, the speakers in front of you, it could sound like it kind of behind you or by the wall all the way to your right or all the way to your left. And it was very interesting. I think that and uh, Sting had an album at the time that was done in Q sound, like almost Mm -hmm. like simultaneous. to when we were working on uh, the Immaculate Collection, Um, it was a great, effect i mean it was very it was it was just like how do we use this creatively um without 
sacrificing the production of the song that everybody loves and you know what what is it truly doing and and i remember at one point during it may have been during rescue me we had the background vocals from rescue me in q sound and typically we'd put maybe a percussion element a tambourine and a cowbell something like that it would be mm-hmm. kind of cool because you'd hear that out of the stereo field but we had the background vocals thinking they would be really wide and almost like like they were around you and uh Goha Toto is the engineer. And um, often we checked our mixes in mono, like on a small or a tone speaker, just to see how everything was sounding, how it would sound like on a, on a car stereo or a car speaker at the time. And go, you know, put the track in mono, see how it was sounding. And all of a sudden, those background vocals were uh, inaudible. They were gone. <laughs> we're like, what's happening here? <laughs> and we took it out of mono, and there they were, put it back in mono, and they were barely audible. And we realized that Q sound, one of the functions of it was uh, was working with phase. And when something's out of phase, it can sound, twist your mind and, and hurt and, and almost become like, where is that, you know, uh, vertigo kind of effect. Mm-hmm. And that's how they were achieving this, this special effect to some extent. So the creators of Q sound were there during the process. And when we discovered this, they frantically ran into the, the live room to, to their units to try to adjust things and address <laughs> this problem and fix it because this is how they were not only introducing it, but how they were developing. I mean, 10 years ago, I think you could probably find a QSound plugin, you know, if mm-hmm. you were using Pro Tools and it was reduced to an algorithm. Um, but it, it, it was, it was an interesting process to, to be a part of, you know, to try to figure out how to use it. And then, yeah, the um, Immaculate Collection still sounds very good today, though. I, it, I, it's more than the mixing. The mastering is very strong as well. Oh, yeah. But there's, there's, a, there's always rumors. Um, and there are rumors that there were songs that remixed that never made it on. Can you confirm or deny that? Um, at the time being, as long ago as it was, I would assume there probably was one or two. But, you know, like, I think they knew. I think everybody knew. You know, what were Madonna's hits that would make a great stitch album? Yeah, <laughs> you know, like it's it's. I don't think there was there was one that that somebody would question. Um, so whatever didn't make it was probably pretty close to, you know, it was a hit or, you know, like we only have so many songs we're going to be able to fit on this thing because she yeah. had so many. Um, but there wasn't a plethora of of uh, songs that people would go, oh, I wish that was on there. You know, I think what was on there is what everybody wanted to be on there. So moving forward to, to the erotic era, um, I've read a number of interviews with you and there's a brilliant story, I hope you don't mind saying it again, about an incident in the studio with you and Madonna where you very early on and you kind of had a falling out. Is that right? <laughs> it's, again, you, you mentioned my age. I was very, very young at the time. I was, uh, let's say, 20 years old or something. Um, it was while I'd been working in the studio for a few years and was around, you know, Duran Duran and people like that. And, and just to put it in perspective, the only experience I had uh, intimately with uh, artists of that stature was when we worked with Duran Duran. Um, there was a weekend, it was the summer, uh, and my family had a house in Montauk, Long Island, which is like, mm-hmm. you know, at the very end of Long Island, it's a fishing town, or as they would refer to it uh, locally, it was a drinking town with a fishing problem. 
<laughs> and my parents had a, a house out there. And so I suggested to uh, Daniel Abraham, the engineer, and and by way of that, um, the, uh, uh, I think it was Nick, not not keyboard player Nick, but um, uh, a different Nick who worked for them. Um, and I'm blanking on the last name right now. Okay. And a woman who worked with, uh, in management for them as part of their team. And then Simon uh, was the only member of the band at the time who was in the studio when I recommended, hey, why don't we go out to Ball Talk for the weekend? And so we, oh, no, I said, when I was a child, my father once took us out there on a seaplane. And, uh, you know, like from Manhattan, you could get a seaplane down at the, on the east side and fly to Montauk and land on the lake. And uh, Simon thought it was a brilliant idea. Like, why don't we, he said, why don't we take a seaplane? And I was like, um, oh, okay. Uh, I looked into it. We, we went to the dock to uh, get the seaplane. The captain, uh, the pilot told us it was too foggy to land in Montauk. We wouldn't be able to do it. So we took a taxi to uh, what was my, you know, basement apartment in Astoria, Queens, where my uh, old beat up Mazda stick shift car was. And we all piled into my car and we drove to Montauk as I normally would have. And um, they spent the weekend out there and we went to the beach and we went to the China Club and we took my boat out and went water skiing. And that was my first interaction with, you know, iconic star. Yeah. Simon LeBon was at my house. Simon LeBon was hanging out with my neighbors in their pool. Uh, we were on the beach and, you know, it, it was an, a wild feeling to be a part of. Mm -hmm. Still, nothing that measures up to who, like a level of who Madonna was at the time. <laughs> so, I met Madonna when we did Vogue, but I, I don't even know if I really even spoke to her. I mean, she came in, she was wearing a beret. I, I felt like you know her and Chef had to do what they had to do, and and I I just I didn't know what to say or anything. So I don't think there was much of an interaction during that time, other than me observing what was going on. When the time came to do erotica and we had music or rescue me and we had music that she was going to come in to work on uh that we had sent her we'd give her the send her the tracks uh, that we were writing and she would write to them and then she would come in and we would do the studio work in chef's apartment studio that we bet we put together so the first time i think she returned after a day or two um very early on in the project, uh, she came in and I was sitting at uh, the computer. We were using Opcode Studio Vision, which later kind of turned into, you know, eventually morphed into things like Pro Tools and Logic. Yeah. But I was editing and working on music and she came upstairs in the studio with up the spiral staircase. And she sat in the back of the room and um, she asked, you know, um, oh, are you done yet? Mm -hmm. And I didn't even turn my head to look because it's intimidating. And I said, oh, not yet. Uh, soon. And a couple of minutes passed by and she asked again, are you done yet? And um, said, no, I'm not, not yet. But, so, you know, and she just kept asking. Anyway, at some point she asked, are you done yet? And I was so panicked and, and uh, intimidated and worried and yet angry at myself for not being able to, you know, to give her <laughs> what she wanted right at the time. I just kind of lost it for a moment. And I said, no, I'm not fucking done yet. And I threw a pencil down or something. And I turned <laughs> around and I said, go downstairs and make some popcorn or something. And when I'm done, I'll let you know. And she just went, okay. And it was, it was like the icebreaker between us. 
I, I, I immediately thought that was the end of my career. Um, but the way she responded was kind of funny. There was kind of a laugh there. And, <laughs> um, and, and it broke the ice. And then it just became much easier to just work from that point on. Um, and we got along very well. It could have gone the other way, though, couldn't it? You were lucky. Oh, of course. Of course it could. <laughs> um, I have to say, you probably know this, but obviously you worked on a number of songs on Erotica. Two of those songs, Deeper and Deeper and Bad Girl, I think are not only some of Madonna's best songs, but I honestly think they're some of the best pop songs ever. So take that, that. take that. You have written some absolute pop genius moments. Um, what was kind of the process? Was it you and Shep would work on stuff and then present it to Madonna? Yeah, we would work on the music and then present it to her. Um, you know, Madonna was really the one responsible. Like, so when you say, oh, here's, a, here's an interesting aside, because you say, you know, you've written some brilliant, uh, wonderful songs. Um, when I first signed on uh, during this time, we were working with Kathy Dennison, like, kind of simultaneously, and Taylor Dane, yeah. uh, writing for them. Um, I remember signing up with ASCAP, um, and I remember being introduced to Marilyn Bergman, like the head of ASCAP, and she asked me, she said, um, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a songwriter. And she looked at me and she knew what I had done, right? That I was just writing uh, music, mm -hmm. uh, composing, right? So she said, no, uh, my dear, you're a composer. A songwriter writes both lyrics and melody. <laughs> and uh, so I was kind of put in my place then. So just for perspective, yeah, Chef and I were writing, um, the, we were composing music. And we would send the music to Madonna and she would come back. Uh, and we would record her lyrics and melody against it. Um, and so for something like Bye Bye Baby, you know, yeah, we had this kind of cool sounding track, um, mm -hmm. had a neat, like kind of hip hop kind of beat to it. Um, it was, it wasn't your, you know, full kind of musical leading you into melody. So obviously that lent mm -hmm. itself to the vocal approach and, um, which is, you know, somewhat spoken a lot of the time and and chef and engineers and people in the studio at the time didn't employ this method all that often but i guess you could call it the telephone effect or the, or yeah. the, the small radio effect but we wanted to use that effect on her vocal and this is prior to the time when there was a plug-in that you could just apply to her vocal and say use the yeah. telephone effect mm -hmm. so we rented a piece of equipment that resides like you know in studios like soundworks but not in our home studio uh, it was a Pultec hlf filter and we rented it from one of the uh, rental companies and rented out uh, outboard gear and different things and they brought it over to the house in a road case and we plugged the mic directly through it and as she recorded the vocal we tweaked the, the settings on it and to to get a filtered effect sometimes changing how much filter was applied during what part of the song and it was recorded that way so it wasn't something you could undo later on yeah. um and that was kind of how that came about and the other song you mentioned was uh deeper and deeper and that was you know that was a little bit of a obviously chef uh was was brought up and and uh made his career in in the disco era uh, yeah. as a dj and so it was heavily disco inspired uh, song from not just the beat and the drums, but the, the string arrangements. And, and I loved strings. And so we had a, uh, a Proteus, which was a, you know, a, 
a synthesizer, rack mount synthesizer that had certain uh, emulations of strings. And so uh, we played these uh, string parts in. Um, ironically enough, I think the first song we did was, there was a song called uh, This Used to Be My Playground, which yep. Madonna uh, recorded for A League of Their Own. And we met her. That was actually maybe the second time I actually met her, which is when we went to Chicago to meet her to discuss the song for the movie. Um, we met her and I think Rosie O'Donnell and, and um, we went out to dinner and went to, uh, I don't know, somewhere else in Chicago. And, and anyway, when we did record that song, it was recorded at Oceanway Studios with a legendary engineer named Al Schmidt. And Vinnie Caliuta, this tremendous drummer on drums. And either way, it was a full band and orchestration um, based on a mock-up or a demo that we did in our studio. Mm -hmm. um, there was a string part I had written, a little solo section string part. And Jeremy Lubbock took the strings we had done and did a brilliant arrangement of the strings for a live uh, 15 or 30-piece string section. It's very expensive at the time to record a, a orchestra or a string section like that. There was a solo string segment mm -hmm. in, in that song. And it was, it was done on a synthesizer on the Proteus or whatever. And uh, we, after we were done recording everything, um, I think Madonna realized, she's like, what happened to the, the solo section? And um, we realized that it hadn't been transcribed or mm -hmm. incorporated. And uh, we pulled up the demo and quickly played it for the, the copyist who wrote it out and had the string players play it just in the nick of time. So that was my first experience with not just, you know, putting strings in a song, but, you know, even that with that, it was a live string section. So with Deeper and Deeper, yeah, the strings were utilized to recreate the live disco strings that were so prominent in so many of the great disco records. The only other aside from that song is that during the, the mixing process, which was now at Soundworks Studios, you know, putting it all together, and there was a... a there was never really a bridge, so to speak, to the song or a middle eight, as you would call it or something. Mm -hmm. So as something was playing, there was an acoustic guitar in the studio and I was sitting off uh, near the, the door to the control room with, on the couch with an acoustic guitar and I'm a bass player, so I'm playing with my fingers. And I just started playing. Uh, it was almost an exercise, and it, it, but it sounded like a flamenco uh, guitar, what a flamenco guitar would be doing. Mm -hmm. And I just kept playing, and I and I came up with a figure that a melody and a figure, and um, I guess you know she heard it or thought it was interesting, and and then it just became pursued as like let's put this into the song, and then Shep took it to the other levels of uh, well if we're going to do it let's really do it <laughs> castanets and you know whatever and all that and all that went along with it, um, and that's how that came about. Wow. I think I mentioned that um, although none of the multi-tracks from any of your songs have leaked, the vocals have. Uh, deeper and Deeper is one of them. Um, erotica, the other. And what's interesting, and you may correct me here, it sounds like Madonna's not wearing cans, but is actually hearing the, the monitors and singing along to that. Is that your recollection? of how We she recorded, a, uh, most of the vocals for that album were recorded in the project studio at Shep's. I suppose before I, I say goodbye to you, I do want to ask you, do you have a sense, I mentioned earlier that you've written some of the best pop songs ever. Do you feel that kind of pride that in the work you did with Madonna, that it was special? 
definitely feel pride in what I did, and it was special. I've done there's so many things I've worked on since then um, that I I would say I have an equal amount or even more pride in just because my skills or or my abilities as a writer have developed. Um, I spent you know a number of years working on music for advertising, which which could sound boring at the time, but it <laughs> but there were certain advertisements for Calvin Klein and for Fabian Barron, yeah. who I think Madonna probably knows because back when we worked with Madonna, Fabian Barron was famous for creating a very controversial ad with children um, in underwear and, and, and whatnot, and it was very controversial. And Fabian went on to direct and still directs all these beautiful uh, Calvin Klein and, and um, Burberry and, and other uh, scent uh, ads um, visually stunning ads so i got to do music for a lot of those and some of those things sound you know like it could be off a nine inch nails record or mm-hmm. you know is, is, is very he was always very uh enthusiastic about music uh and the role music played in it um and also advertising music gives you an ability to merge different genres and create almost new genres um so i'm proud of a lot of that kind of thing um Madonna was definitely the uh the first um, huge, you know, kind of success and probably one of my biggest successes as far as music written. Um, and there was always a desire to like continue to, 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 to evolve. Madonna always evolved by working with different people. You know, yeah. she went on to work with Junior and then she went on to work uh, with Mirwa and she went on to work with, um, and she returned to some people like, you know, Patrick Leonard, or, you know, there were certain, certain people she's, she's worked with throughout the years that have helped her evolve her sound and what she did. And I always kind of wanted to hear her go, not the acoustic route, but, you know, some, some simplify a little bit. Uh, And while I like some of the new, you know, a lot of new material, Ray of Light was a groundbreaking record. I think that's amazing. I just think everything encapsulates a certain point in her career and a a time in music uh, really, really well. And of course, um, Shep has kind of retired from music as well for some time now. Are you, have you ever been in touch with him since at all? Not too much. Um, I know he uh, he still DJs a lot. Um, I know he continued doing music for a while. Um, and I know that he just loves music, period, uh, and always will. Um, yeah. So I, I would not be surprised if he was sitting uh, somewhere right now thinking up something new or creating something new. Well, maybe one day I'll get a chance to speak to him, but uh, who, who knows? Um, I don't want to keep you for any longer. You've given such a wonderful insight. Thank you so much for that, Tony. Um, and I, I do want to add, though, the, the thing is that the one thing I am most grateful for is the ability to have worked in that studio, like just from as an intern and learned from, from people like Shep and, and so many of the engineers and producers that came through there uh, that helped me learn the craft of not just uh, not composition as much, but the uh, production and, and how to record and make music and and make things sound the way they do and, and to be bold um, yeah. and not to you know not to not to be afraid to try uh, anything um, and that's a lot of that is credited to all those people and Shep is you know one of the ones I worked with the longest you know um, after that I got to work with Junior and you know they. A lot of these people were very close with one another too. It's a very tight knit community. Yeah, 
I was going to say, do you have a piece of advice if there's somebody sat listening to this who wants to make music or is already making music? What's the one thing you've learned that you would give them advice to do? I'd say there are no rules and don't be afraid to try anything. Um, there's nothing wrong with being inspired by something you've heard, mm-hmm. uh, even wanting to kind of recreate that kind of sound. But don't be afraid to just go beyond it um, and, um, and, and, and be aware that there, there's only 12 notes and somebody at some point will say, like they just said to about Lady Gaga's latest that, oh, she took it from, or, you know, go to Pharrell and, um, and what happened with Marvin Gaye's estate mm-hmm. and with him and, and Robin Thicke, uh, you know, there, there's a fine line between paying homage to, um, and the, the intent of making something sound like something else. Um, Dua Lipa, I think her, 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 lead song off the new record did a perfect job of making a great new song with a fantastic original melody uh instrumentation that is both old and new yeah um and i think that's that's what i say people should aspire to make something sound like somebody make make something sound like somebody else is going to make it want to (laughs) sound you know um and just don't be afraid to try anything and if you love it that's all that really matters you know, if you love yeah. it, chances are somebody else might too. And and there's just like, look, I heard recently there's as many as 400,000 new songs being released every day. So, you know, back when we created that, there was uh, radio stations that you relied on and a handful of places you got to listen to music. And there was MTV and there were places that promoted it. And now music is everywhere in every medium on TV it is made popular by advertisements and TV shows. And you don't, you know, live concerts, uh, going out and seeing a band and anybody can release anything they create right now and have it heard to have it become viral or successful is another story, but that's always possible. So everybody has a chance now to really be heard. There's so much stuff I've heard that impresses me beyond belief. <laughs> <laughs> You know you're going to get people sending you stuff on Twitter now. <laughs> I don't mind. Not at all. Nope. I'm, Noble I'm, Music I'm... NYC. <laughs> <laughs> wow, there you go. Noble Music NYC. You can find Tony on Twitter. And I have to say that was one of the most pleasurable interviews I've ever carried out. I've been interviewing pop stars, musicians, and all sorts of people for over 20 years. But what I liked about what Tony had to say is as well as going into technical detail, he was very upfront about you know how it was to actually work in that period and to be working with the biggest pop star in the world must have been astonishing and when you think he was only 20 at that time wow fantastic i hope you enjoyed it i haven't played you all of the interview he actually spoke about the song erotica a fair bit and i'm saving that because the next episode will be about erotica so i hope you find time to tune in until then thank you very much for listening and remember stay inside the groove